In your Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. We find ourselves in chapter 9 today. Uh, If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that I mentioned a few moments ago, uh, page 557 is where you're going to find the start of today's text. Uh, Today, not only is uh, Covenant Entrance Day for us, it's also uh, the two-year anniversary since we've moved into this space. Um, So, um, crazy enough, that was two years ago. It was the end of October that we had our last service at the Elks Lodge, and then um, moved over to this space the week after. So, the first Sunday in November is special for us for multiple reasons. Uh, We are grateful to God for the availability of this space, that we get to use it day in and day out. Uh, that we don't have to, as many of you would say amen to, uh, set up and tear down chairs and kids' ministry things every single week. Um, So we're grateful to God for for having two years here now in this space. The more that, uh, maybe this will resonate with you too, the more that we immerse ourselves in this book of Ecclesiastes, the more that I am experiencing two different things. Uh, One of them is a growing desire to get to Advent. A growing desire to get to Advent. Um, This book is hard. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. And to study it, if you give yourself to this book at all, to study it requires a soul-level engagement with the futility, with the meaninglessness of things that honestly are very normative and very comfortable for me and for many of us. And so this book strips away the, the fluffy aspects of what we often consider to be faith, and it deals with the gritty reality of it. Uh, in my house, we have this big oversized stuffed beanbag chair, uh, and my two older girls love it when I pick them up and throw them across the room from a few feet away to land on the beanbag chair. Uh, they laugh, they often run back up, and they say, do it again. Uh, as I think about anticipating and celebrating the birth of Jesus at Advent, the Gospel of John, which is where we'll be when we get there in a few weeks, uh, seems more and more like this beanbag that I can't wait to land on. And over and over again, like, tell me again about the eternal God taking on flesh, dwelling among us to reconcile the world to himself. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, is like the hard floor, which I sincerely doubt, it's not happened yet, thankfully, that my girls would enjoy as much if I threw them from a few feet away and they landed on that instead. And yet, this is the other thing uh, that I'm experiencing in studying this book, Landing on the proverbial floor, so to speak, also teaches me. It teaches me something about the real kindnesses of God that I'm liable to take for granted. It teaches me truth about this life. It teaches me truth about this world. But rather than teaching me by happy and encouraging things, Ecclesiastes teaches me truth by exposing and by shattering lies. By shattering and exposing what is is smoke, what is vapor, what is vain. An author and scholar named Peter Kreeft says it this way. He says, Ecclesiastes is revelation by darkness rather than by light. In this book, God reveals to us exactly what life is when God does not reveal to us what life is. And he goes on to say this, Ecclesiastes frames the Bible as death frames life. Ecclesiastes frames the Bible as death frames life. So this book is such a helpful and critical inclusion in Holy Scripture. And that's where I found such a deepening appreciation for it as we've been in this book, as we've studied it. We come to know more about God. We come to know more about the ways of God and the life of faith when the fluff around it is exposed and torn out. 
And Kreft's quote is particularly apt in light of today's text. Because as we get into the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Koholeth, this preacher king author of this book, begins by contemplating the inevitability of death. And some of what we know in our lives about life, we know because of the reality of death. We think about life, we think about our lives differently when we honestly contemplate and wrestle with death. And so as Koholeth does that, as we do that, I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, I'll begin in verse 1 and read all the way through the chapter. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as the one who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 7, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be white, be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Verse 11, again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Blessed Lord, who caused all of Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we might hear them, that we might learn, that we might inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life 
which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So Koholeth is continuing on this quest to find out the meaning and the purpose of life. And he begins here laying it all to heart, examining it all, as he says in verse 1. And he comes to this realization that the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Now to you and me, hearing this on this side of the finished work of Jesus Christ... That sounds like great news. We immediately skip over all the centuries that happened between the writing of this book and today. But remember, this quest that he's embarked on is one that doesn't assume that God is for his people or God is with his people or even that God is in the picture at all. So to arrive at the conclusion that people are in the hand of God is deeply troubling and deeply unsettling. As he says right after that, are we in the hands of God for love or for hate? Are we in the hands of God for tender care and nurture? Are we, are we in the hands of God to be messed with and to be manipulated and to be ultimately condemned? With only what our eyes can perceive, without God revealing to us more than that, revealing to us otherwise, we see evidences of both. We have joys and we have suffering and sorrows in this life. We see evidences that seem to point to a fact that God loves us, And we have evidences that would seem to point to the fact that God hates us. With only our eyes to guide us, man does not know. And so we're nervous to answer that question. Is it for love or is it for hate? And in this text, Koholeth proceeds then to contemplate the vanity of three more things which only add to that nervousness. Fate, fortune, and favor. Fate, fortune, and favor. So let's consider each of those things in turn. First is fate. As Australian pastor and author Peter Barnes puts it, death is the ultimate proof of our lack of control over life. Death is the ultimate proof of our lack of control over life. We learn something very true about our limited ability in this life through the inevitability of our death. But even more than lack of control, what Koholeth laments here is this apparent injustice, what he calls a great evil that exists in this. That whether righteous or wicked, good or evil, clean or unclean, the one who keeps religious commands and vows or the one who does not, we share the same fate. The same event happens to us all. Without any specific set of convictions about what happens after life, this seems to be an injustice. And even for those of us with convictions about what happens after this life, it still often feels like an injustice. We considered last week as we looked at chapter 7 and 8 that sometimes the wicked preserves his life while the righteous one suffers and dies. Sometimes there are righteous people to whom it is done according to the deeds of the wicked and sometimes there are wicked people to whom it is done according to the deeds of the righteous. So at best, at best, death is this great equalizer. It's the inevitable fate of us all. But at worst, from this vantage point, it's evil. Here in this, though, hear the contradictions and the conflict inside Koholeth that starts to bubble out and spill over here as he writes this. Because if you recall back to chapter 4, his conclusion in chapter 4 was that death was preferable to life. He said there that the dead were enviable, that the dead were more fortunate than the living, and even better was the one who was not yet born. 
And then trace it forward to chapter 6. He went to a really dark place in chapter 6. He said he wished that he was never born. A stillborn child would have been better than him. Here, as he wrestles with the inevitability and injustice of death, what he lands on is the opposite. The value of life. That life is preferable to death because life at least is characterized by hope. As he says, the, the living dog is better than the dead lion. Uh, those are symbols that would have a lot of weight in this cultural context. In this culture, a dog was an unclean animal. It was used as a derogatory term for other people. A lion was a powerful predator. But life is better than death. And so even the most difficult, even the most humbling life, within that life, you still experience knowledge and reward and love and hate and envy and a share of what is done under the sun. So which is it? Which is it? Is death preferable to life or is life preferable to death? We'll return to that in a little while. But don't miss the inner conflict that Koholeth experiences as he walks through this quest. As Derek Kidner puts it in his commentary, his writing, Koholeth's writing, is characterized by collisions between obstinate facts of observation and equally obstinate intuitions that Kidner says push us toward a synthesis which lie mostly beyond the pages of Ecclesiastes. In other words, the obstinate fact of our fate, the inevitability of our death, collides with a stubborn intuition that we carry around with us as people, that there is more than that to the story, that there's more than this apparent injustice and this apparent evil of the righteous and the wicked sharing the same fate. But in Ecclesiastes... All we really get is this collision. We hit the hard floor without a settling conclusion. As a practical implication of Koholet's words here, don't shy away from the topic of death. Don't shy away from contemplating it, talking about it, wrestling with it. Christians in our time and place are not really known for their ability to grieve and to mourn well. Our biggest churches, our most podcasted and well-read leaders tend to be people with shiny smiles and titles that sound like self-help books because they really are self-help books. I so much more like this keychain that Peter Barnes says he carries around with him. It reads, eat right, exercise, die anyway. <laughs> eat right, exercise. I want some of those keychains. I would buy one if he was selling them. As unpleasant as it is, and no doubt many of you today or in recent weeks or months have come face to face with death in your own family. As much sorrow as it will bring to mind to think about those people that you've lost and to consider the inevitability of your own death, an honest contemplation of death is essential to a proper understanding of life. And it's essential for us to be, as Christians, people who deal in reality who take the world as we find it, who relate to other people as we find them, and not to some utopian, idealistic version of the way we wish it was or the way we wish they were. Death frames our understanding of life. Just like for those of us who worship regularly in a Christian church, Good Friday, Lent and Good Friday, frame our understanding of and our longing for Easter Sunday. Just like if we will let it, Ecclesiastes will frame our understanding of and our longing for the incarnation of Jesus Christ that we celebrate at Advent. So let it do just that. Don't shy away 
from death. Second, let's talk about fortune. Fortune. Skip down to verse 11. Time and chance happen to us all. So chance, fortune, good or bad fortune, is as guaranteed as death. There are certainly patterns in life. There are certainly some predictors about how certain aspects of life will go if we live a certain way. But none of our lives perfectly play out according to orderly and predictable patterns. There's no ordinary and predictable script to which our life plays out. One of the more recognized pieces of Ecclesiastes are these proverbs, which kind of sound more like anti-proverbs. Uh, if you remember all the way back to our first week in Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of Proverbs, generally speaking, is like successories. Uh, it's like the motivational posters that often get hung in different businesses, right? Pithy sayings about teamwork and synergy and how life goes well when we do all those things right. Ecclesiastes is the spoof of that, the demotivational posters. Equally true, but a lot more cynical. There are a few more of those demotivational posters. I didn't have time to make them. I'm sorry. There are a few more of them packed into verse 11. The fastest person is going to lose to someone slower than them. The race doesn't always go to the swift. Uh, The strongest army is going to suffer defeat. They're not going to win every battle. The most brilliant person might end up the poorest. The wisest might end up the most scorned. Because chance is inevitable, our lives will be unpredictable. And I want you to think about that for just a moment right now. What in your life has actually gone according to plan? And on the other side, what hasn't? What hasn't? What for you looked so good on paper? Someone asked you the question, where do you see yourself in five or ten years? You had such a great answer for that. It made sense in your head. It made sense on paper. And the reality of it has looked completely different than what you expected. Employment is one that quickly came to mind for me. Uh, When I was halfway through my senior year of college, I had a job lined up for after I graduated. And it was still in Fort Worth where I had begun to date Shay. I was excited that we wouldn't have to do long distance. And then the employer called a couple weeks later after, after offering me the job and rescinded it, rescinded the offer. I found out why. It's because someone whose family that they knew also had a son that was looking for a job. Uh, and even though that person hadn't really expressed interest or applied till after the process was over, uh, the job went to him. So nothing to do with talent, nothing to do with preparation or skill, only to do with fortune, Uh, the time and chance that that family member's son would be looking for a job at the same moment and that relationship would outweigh all all the other factors involved. Some of you, no doubt, uh, have much more difficult and much more costly examples of this. And we're all, whatever it is, we're all so caught off guard and surprised when these things happen to us in our lives. When it doesn't go the way that we thought, Uh, when it plays out in a completely illogical way or according to no pattern at all. But in the end, in the end, the only thing that should really surprise us is that we ever thought otherwise. That we ever kidded ourselves to think that if we planned ahead enough, prepared well enough, worked hard enough, that we could hold fortune at bay. I hope you heard this. There's an overlap then here between fortune and fate. Specifically, that that fortune is also a factor in how and when we die. As Koholeth puts it, like fish in a net, like birds in a snare, people are snared, he says, at an evil time. Death suddenly falls upon us. Most of us envision dying at an old age, or at least with a lot of warning and a lot of lead time to that moment. But let 
this inevitability of both death and chance. Let that remind you today that it can just as easily happen in the course of a normal, otherwise ordinary day. Our own church family has seen this firsthand in recent years. Many of you uh, were blessed to know, to be friends with a woman named Joy Walker. And hers was a hard, broken, suffering late in life. So I don't know that any of us who knew her well expected that she would ever live on to old age. But for all the things that could have brought about the end of her life, it was a small patch of slick road, not even a mile and a half from here on 15, early on a Saturday morning, when of all things, she was on the way to Hack, to our local community college, to take to continue her classes in HVAC, which she was learning to create a better life and career for herself. That's when she died. Early 40s, 41 years old when she passed away. Here again, we find the facts of the inevitability of death colliding with our intuitions and with our longings. We find ourselves desperate for some kind of answer beyond simply what our eyes can see. But this morning, let at least this truth be cemented in your mind. That your circumstances, your life, your circumstances, are a terribly incomplete picture of the posture of God toward you. Because time and chance happen to us all. If all we have, if all we have are the outwardly observable circumstances of our lives, then we will, like Koholeth, struggle to know whether it is the love of God or the hatred of God when we look at our circumstances. What we see elsewhere in Scripture is that circumstances themselves are incomplete. Abraham was rich. Haman was rich. One was righteous. One was incredibly wicked. King Ahab of Israel was incredibly wicked. He died by chance in battle. King Josiah of Judah was righteous. He also died by chance in battle. Time and chance happen to us all. And without being able to know something more of the posture of God, the heart of God, it will leave us conflicted and deep in inner turmoil. Third and finally, favor. Let's talk about favor. If there's one thing even more erratic, even more fickle than chance, it's the favor of other people. It's the favor of other people. Koholeth recalls here an example that he's observed in his own life. A city saved by the wisdom of a poor and wise man. And yet, he says, no one remembered that poor man and his wisdom. Even worse, his wisdom was despised. His words were not heard. Koholeth has already dealt extensively with the vanity of wisdom. Here we see both the value and the vulnerability of wisdom. So it's better than might. It's better than the weapons of war. And it's despised. It's powerful enough to deliver an entire city. But its effects are also negated instantly by the actions of one sinner. And that immediately reminds me of this Old Testament story of the Israelites entering the promised land. And the sin of this one man, Achan, when they were attacking the city of Ai, keeping some of the treasure for his own personal gain, and the entire Israelite army suffered defeat because of it. But as much as these verses contrast the power of wisdom and the power of one man's sin, they also expose the vanity of esteem, of approval, of gratitude from other people. They forgot the poor man instantly. And this is yet another set of things that we are prone to look to for meaning and purpose in our lives. And God knows that's true of me. 
God knows that's true of me. I've referred to myself, I do refer to myself often as a recovering people pleaser. And I actually use the language of an addict, not by any means to mock or demean other kinds of addiction, but because there's something deep in me that craves that kind of favor from other people. The vanity of this then has been a critical and painful lesson for me to learn in my life. And not just out in the world at large where we might anticipate, uh, where we might more easily anticipate and expect that people's opinions of you will vacillate. It's for me been just as much true, if not more true, among Christians in the church. And and some of that has to do with the the chair that I sit in as a pastor. Uh, People fall in and out of love with you. People fall in and out of love with the way that you lead, the way that you're involved in their lives on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. Sometimes that has a lot to do uh, with me personally and something I'm doing poorly, some kind of sin pattern of mine. Sometimes it has very little to do with me and everything to do with another person's baggage and brokenness in their own life. Either way, you and I will wreck our lives if we look to the favor of other people to bring a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in this life under the sun. And interestingly enough, this is one aspect of Kohalas' quest that he spends very little time on, perhaps because the vanity of it is so obvious. If we think about it for even a moment, we know how miserable we will be if we hinge our lives, if we hang our lives and look to f- for, for fulfillment in the favor of other people. So to recap, by what we see, by what we observe solely in our circumstances, there is great vanity in fate, in fortune, and in favor. Death is inevitable. Life is unpredictable and is often unjust. The esteem of others is erratic and it is fickle. And so it's completely understandable that Koholeth, or any of us who, like him, honestly and sincerely embark upon this quest, will find ourselves torn between life and death. Is life better or is death better? Without an anchor, and yet, as he wrote in chapter 3, with eternity written on our hearts, there's no option left for us but to vacillate between the two. And this is why, for the entire history of humanity, people fight for and find hope and joy in this life. There's a ton of common grace from God, regardless of whether people acknowledge his existence, acknowledge his power, acknowledge his presence in this world he created. Which is why we hear Koholeth, even as he embarks upon this quest in a secular viewpoint, over and over again landing on this refrain about the value of eating and drinking and enjoying your toil, enjoying your portion in this life. He says, in other words, Live your life because it is worth living. As Christians, whenever we hear this message echoed in society at large, it should resonate deeply. It should stir something within our souls because we have been created by God with a life. We've been created to live a life in a world that God made, in a world that God sustains. At the same time, when you hear that echoed broadly in our society, It should sound hollow in and of itself. Why? Because there's a subtle but massive difference between living life to outrun death and living life because you have embraced death. We can heed Kohalas' words and his advice about life from two different vantage points here. In the one, we fear death. It is our enemy. Time and chance are the evil net. They are the snare. Death will suddenly fall upon us. 
So eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Soak it all up. Soak up all of life because vanity of vanities, it will soon be over. But what if death is no longer our enemy? What if death, our enemy itself, has been defeated? What if in being defeated itself, death has then been transformed from our enemy into our servant? And this is the transformation that takes place through the work of Jesus Christ. In his death, in his resurrection, death itself dies. And for all those in him, all those who trust in his work, we no longer need fear death as our enemy. It instead has become our servant that ferries us from the vanities of this life under the sun to everlasting life in the consummation of the kingdom of God. So don't eat and drink because tomorrow you die. Eat and drink because tomorrow you live. Let your garments be always white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the spouse that you love. Enjoy your portion and your toil in this life. Work at them with all your might because the best of your life now is but a reminder of the good work of God, the good world that God made. And the best of your life now is but a foretaste of what will be again when God in Christ makes all things new. And oh, that we would perceive this and live our life in line with this. That we would outlive, out-enjoy those who at present live apart from Christ. By no means as a self-righteous, self-indulgent testament to ourselves. By no means as if this life was all there is. But as a testament to the salvation and the redemption of God. To the inexhaustible joy in life that there will be beyond the tastes of life and joy that we experience today. As Derek Kidner puts it, let life put death to shame. Let life put death to shame. And let life put death to shame as only Christians can. Soak up all of life, not because vanity of vanities, because praise God, it will all be over soon. And we will see him as he is. May you live your life in such a way that displays to the world that the God of heaven and earth has in Christ defeated the power of death and offered us life. Because Jesus, with his own body and blood, has scorned the shame of death. May you no longer fear it as your enemy. May you welcome it as your servant. And until that day comes for each of us, may you live your life in a way that puts death to shame. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are the one who takes death itself and conquers it. This last greatest enemy of ours has been in your work defeated, and yet we long for the fullness of the fulfillment of that. May we be people who deal in reality, in between these two worlds, of what you have created and has been affected by sin but redeemed in Christ and the fulfillment of it. May we live honestly in between those times, talking honestly, contemplating honestly and sincerely the, the difficulty of death, the pain of death, the sting of death, and yet at the same time being reminded that through the work of Christ, death has become our servant that takes us out of the vain life that we live under the sun. Pray that you would strengthen us in our hearts and minds as we now come to the table of Jesus where we remember the cost that he paid to make this true, to purchase 
our redemption, to purchase the reconciliation of all things to himself. And we pray this in his name. Amen.